There is no greater purpose in my life than to empower someone, help them reach their highest potential. And you cannot do that until you look yourself in the mirror, you accept yourself with grace, and you learn your purpose in life. You have to know yourself to be able to do that. And it's a scary endeavor, but it's the most freeing thing at the same time. Hey guys, welcome to Active Ingredient, the podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and I'll be taking a deep dive into why people do what they do and what it is that drives them. I believe every single person has an active ingredient to them, aka a purpose, and all we have to do is uncover what that is and activate it. I'm looking at people across the board with fancy titles like editors and chiefs, founders and CEOs, to under-the-radar activists who are changing the world one person at a time. I want to get to the bottom of how they first discovered their passion how they channel their talent consistently, and ultimately, how their active ingredient is making the world a better place. Today's episode is with Jen Batchelor. Jen is the founder of Kin Euphorics, a new category of nightlife beverage crafted for conscious connection. The herbal tonic contains euphoria-inducing adaptogens, which are herbs that help the body adapt to stress, nootropics, a compound that helps enhance cognition, and botanics, plants that balance flavor and function. Basically, it is my personal go-to alcohol replacement, and it honestly gives me kind of like that mix of excitement, but chill without the hangover, and it definitely helps my case when it comes to not getting that deli sandwich at the end of the night. So I am a huge fan. Jen has been a trailblazer in an uncharted market and is viewed as one of the leaders in the sober curious movement. Kin Euphorics has also been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, Inc., Forbes, and countless other publications. Like I said, I myself have tried the product during my three-month Sober Curious kind of stint in the beginning of this year, and I have to say that the hype is warranted, and I am not one to go out that late, and I, I tried High Road, which is one of the products that Kinney Forks offers, and I was out way later than my usual bedtime. On today's episode, we get into Jen's career background, the history of alcohol consumption and its original intention, why serving others is the ultimate goal in life, and why getting to know yourself is the first step when it comes to identifying your purpose and going after it. So with that, let's get into today's episode with Jen Batchelor. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Like I've actually wanted to have you since I started it. Like I, you were on my list of people that I wanted to talk to. Oh, I remember. I remember you seeing me walk past what was a butcher's daughter. You're like, I have a new podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Wait. Also, I was reading. I did not know that you had like a, a kin home or like a kin studio in Williamsburg. Oh, my God. Yeah. So where? We, we opened a speakeasy off Lormer um, back like a year ago, like last Christmas. And um, we called it Moonrise Studio, and it, it doubles as like a creative studio. We've actually recorded a bunch of live podcasts there. We've done everything there. We've done tattooing, live tattooing. I know, full moon. So cool. Um, I'm starting the podcast differently than I normally do because obviously, like, we have to address the elephant in the room. But how has this whole thing been affecting the business? And when, um, when did you start calling a little bit of harder shots? 
right away we were assessing, you know, we sort of saw the writing on the wall because 2020 really was supposed to be, it's our second year in business. It was supposed to be the time where we now move away from being primarily direct to consumer and we start moving into hospitality and bars and really spreading the message IRL, you know, where people are actually spending their the most time drinking or were. And so as soon as we heard that, you know, there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of fear, we knew that the first thing to suffer was going to be, you know, the luxury of going out, right? And it's like anything with Canon, really probably anything in my life, best laid plans are not a guarantee to you know, success. And especially when, you know, the outliers and the risk of exposure is sort of out of your control, right? So we really quickly pivoted away from that. We sort of put all of our field marketers on on notice. We reached out to all of our on-premise partners, current and potential, the ones, the leads we had been working. And we sort of, you know, we checked on them and we kept in communication, but we pivoted right away. We were like, look, look, all the launches we were supposed to do Let's just channel all of that energy into creating a service for our guests that could help them have a really safe, healthy, happy place online where they could experience each other and where our brand message could resonate in a more powerful way. You know, the crux of what we do is conscious connection, and we knew that that was going to be really important right now. So we launched a show called Tune In Together Online, and we've been doing that every Wednesday, and the audience is growing, the roster is growing. So is that what I tuned into? I think I, I tuned into something. Are you, are you the one that's leading them? Yeah, yeah. I, oh, okay. I kicked them off, and then we have, like, oh, okay. a musician or an artist. We yeah. have, you know, a, a practitioner or an energy healer, and then we end with Q&A with, with me and, and a collaborator. Um, so, yeah, we do that every Wednesday, and then every Friday we're doing um, live dinners. And how are you, like, mentally holding up? Obviously, like, you're, I feel like your company has been just skyrocketing, especially the past year. I feel like people are really catching on. Yeah. How has this whole thing affected you, you know, mentally, emotionally? Been- it's been tough. I mean, you have to, you know, like anything, you know, carve out a discipline that keeps you sane and strong of mind and reconnect to your values because otherwise something like this can really rock your foundation. And and I, I think we took it as an opportunity to strengthen and fortify the mission so that we could come back to what our truth is as a brand, what we were truly trying to accomplish um, rather than get distracted, you know, and um, cause it's so easy. It's so easy in a time of, of collective crisis to be like, Oh my God, how can we be of immediate service? Why don't we, you know, do a fundraiser to try and save all of the restaurants we're working with. Everyone's like adopt fast, adopt fast. And it's like, actually, and you're, you're hitting it on the nail. Like it's something that I think obviously in your business, but all of us in life are like forced to, I'm forced to come back to my, my childhood home. Like a lot of people are forced to face a lot of things that are like the foundation of who we are as people, you know? And that's, what's making me really feel like we're going to come out so much stronger because our base is going to be so much stronger. And like the decisions that we're making are going to be made really consciously, you know? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's what served us in this really early on was just to say, you know, we care about our guests. What do we know about them? You know, we were constantly churning out, you know, 2019 was about creating and dreaming and building and launching and doing that over and over again. I mean, we launched three products in, in less than 12 months. 
So when you're constantly doing that, looking outward, it's really, really difficult to reassess, reevaluate, look inward, celebrate the wins, you know, lament the losses, but then learn from them and go out and optimize. So, you know, I, I share that with my team. Uh, I don't see busyness as a badge of honor, tiredness, exhaustion. I really practice what I preach. I try to help my team recover, stay healthy. And so we took the first four weeks of this to just reevaluate what was important, pick two things we wanted to do, and just do them really, really well. And that was the community um, building on Instagram. That's such a smart strategy. And also, when you're doing too much right now, you lose you lose the community. I just feel like I'm overwhelmed by the lives of everyone at the same time, you know. And I feel like if you have a community that's looking forward to specific things, it's just such a smarter approach. Because I mean, personally, as a consumer, I'm a little bit like. Whoa. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no. And and that was the thing I was noticing too, is just like even those that like those first two weeks, every single brand didn't matter what was going on, was sending me the same email. Unfortunately, we decided to close our doors. COVID this, COVID that. And I finally just reached out to our guests like 10 days in, and I'm like, look, I'm not here to tell you I have any answers. I'm here to say I we are built to hold space for this we are going to commit to delivering news and optimism and solutions to help you stay sane, clear, strong-minded, and joyful through this time. If you want in, we're here. If you want to opt out for a little bit, we totally feel you. You know, it's whatever suits you. We are the host and you are the guest. That is the mentality that we've been, you know, really applying to everything that we do. And with that, it's such a subtle thing, right? But when you come at problems, especially as a brand from a place of service, it's so much easier to sit back and listen. You know, when you have like a great server at a restaurant, they're just just there to hear you out and do what they can to make your experience amazing. I'm going to get into the whole can launch, how you even came across this idea um, and this category. But before I do, I always really get into what the guest was like as a kid. And I personally just love this conversation just because I feel like when we were younger, I feel like that was like the magic sauce of us, you know, and then we kind of get all this information, all of these shoulds, cages, like ways of being that we feel like we need to fit into. And then kind of you lose that 10 year old magic. So I want to know what little Jen was like. <laughs> well, she was very bossy and I'm okay. send you a photo of her. Um, well, so my story's kind of um kind of unique. I mean, probably more popular now than in the 80s when I was born. But my my mom was a single mom. She had me when she was 17. So my parents were still in high school. Yeah. My dad was in the military, so he very quickly, you know, was sort of displaced. Um I lived and and grew up with, you know, eight women, my mom, my grandmother, all her sisters, of which she has four, and then all of their best friends who were all women, all Dominican, Cuban, you know, just like very like family, every single person had something maternal to offer me. So I really did have like nine moms. Um, But in that, I think there was always a sense that I had to be the grown up you know, where my mom was still sort of the wild child. She was the youngest of all of all of her sisters. And so I was very conservative. I was, you know, I'd rather be with my nose in a book reading and learning things. And I really took after my aunt who was a registered nurse. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll become a doctor. Maybe I'll 
whatever it is, I'm going to pursue higher learning. Like I knew from the start, everybody was like, oh, she's so smart. She's going to go and do this thing. And I thought lawyer, doctor for sure, because I was the first person in my family to really go to college. Yeah. And I was just looking to be, to like make them proud, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, moving from that place of, um, there was a little bit of fear and conservatism around that because I saw my mom as a wild child. So I had to counter that energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think around the time that I was seven, six or seven, my parents decided, oh, so they, they got married when they were 18, okay. divorced when they were 19. Whoa. <laughs> oh my god! And then we got back together five years later. What? Yeah, I gotta get your parents on this podcast. Oh my god, <laughs> they're a riot! And and to to make it, even are they more- still together? They're still together. They're Jen, still- what? No, I need to get your parents on this podcast. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, they were true, true high school sweethearts, and they were just clowns. You know, they were both very young, and and they're the first ones to say that I raised them and not the other way around. But by the time my parents decided to get back together, my dad was living in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, his military background, but also his parents and, and his brother had already, you know, sort of been based internationally, and they all ended up in Saudi so as a kid, I got like firsthand experience of, you know, sort of being torn away from what I knew, which was the sort of coven of women now into really repressive society. Um, you know, there's there still is very little respect for women in, in, um, in Saudi Arabian culture. That's just how it goes. Not a big secret. And um, so it was an adjustment for sure. And I think in my life, in my young, young life, I always knew that I had to be a fighter. I had to grow up with um, some sort of credibility to be able to fight for others. You know, I didn't know exactly how to put that into motion. I thought, you know, for sure, as my life became more clear, um, you know, certainly in my teenage years, I thought I'd be an attorney because it seemed that attorneys had a lot of power in that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a windy road since then. But I, I mean, it's interesting because you definitely have a ton of power right mm-hmm. now in just a completely different way than a lawyer. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, kind of still end game. Like you're changing minds. You're changing. I mean, not laws per se, but like I mean, the fact that you're changing perception and changing the way that people consume alcohol or spirit or whatever that category. Like that's super powerful. Yeah, no, and I I still do, I think, aspire to changing laws. You know, I, been, being in this now, I'm going on my fourth year of building Ken and, and thinking about how euphorics will change the future of revelry, will change the way people approach their social interactions, especially when it comes to, you know, relaxation and, and um, coming together in communion. I mean, you think about all of the ways that liquor or alcohol has been socialized to induce something, whether it's on a first date, it helps to loosen you up to be more yourself, but it also opens you up to um, sexual experiences, right? Whether good or bad. Um, You know, it facilitates a lot of things that perhaps are a societal crutch as well, where we sort of say, oh, I wouldn't have done that if I wasn't drinking. So take that, you know, 10 feet forward um, and 10 years into the future, I do see a world where um, there is way more of a tax on this as a vice. 
and way more ownership and responsibility on the people that are writing the laws and the lobbyists. I mean, look at this bullshit with COVID. You have liquor stores still open as an essential business. And asked bold face when asked straight up the the senators, they're like, oh yeah, we can't we can't possibly close liquor stores. We have so many alcoholics that they would storm the hospitals because of their withdrawals. That, that was is insane. I did not know that. We're cognitively aware that our society has a problem, yet we're not actively doing anything right? We're still allowing advertisers to glamorize alcohol and the, you know, even the Hendrix and the, the brands that I, I think are trying to do things a little bit more progressively are still glamorizing the hell out of this thing that is clearly a poison. So when we get really real with ourselves, um, it's, it's very easy to get fed up and, and angry about it. So I, I think I still hold on to that conviction as I even as I act in, in a manner of, of joy and optimism, there's still a lot of responsibility, I feel, a lot of weight on my shoulders, I think, to, to progress and transform this industry. I'm so excited to see it unfold. <laughs> so walk us through your trajectory. Like what did you – you thought you wanted to be a lawyer. What was kind of your path and how did you get to, to this idea? Sure. So I was actually pre-law in college. I thought, you know – Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Did you go to FSU or am I making this up? I went to FSU. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. I had a great law school. I thought about transferring to UF, and then I applied to go to Emory in Atlanta. And three years into the College of Business, which was the, the recommended sort of route um, out of FSU into a great law program, uh, I realized that for me, it was really about communication. I, I sort of had an inkling that I, I had an entrepreneurial bone in my body, and I wanted to expand from there and explore before I went straight into, you know, another three or four years of school and more debt and all of that because I, I single-handedly put myself through college. So that was something I really had to weigh and consider. And I ended up leaving there with a degree in multinational business operations uh, and finance and a minor in creative writing. And so for me, it was immediately sort of going into this world of first banking. Uh, funny enough, I went into investor relations and then I got into, um, got recruited by a private bank to run, um, sort of be like their community liaison. So it was a very small, um, very, you know, good old boys club type of private bank. And the way that they did business was mostly with community leaders. And so at one point, you know, I was 23 sitting on six or seven board of directors helping with everything from marketing to communications and everything in between, helping them sort of position their brands. From is there, this I, in New York? This is in Miami. Oh, this is in Miami. Okay. Yeah. Miami, Fort Lauderdale. So the, the bank was Bank of Florida. Hmm. Um, it's since been acquired. But um, yeah, they they just entrusted me to be the face of this, you know, the, their community affairs. And that was in, in lieu of like a traditional business development officer um, who was sort of out pounding the pavement and, um, you know, just maintaining the reputation of the, of the bank. So whether it was the Museum of Art Fort Lauderdale or Jack and Jill organization, I got a lot of quick exposure to the way that these amazing organizations were sort of archaically running their show. So I introduced them. This is around the time that Facebook opened beyond uh, the .edu emails and opened to, to people outside of college. And I started helping them understand how to communicate on social media, how to market themselves digitally and, and you know, save some money, but also reach a new audience in that. Um, 
which was actually really successful. Um, I ended up getting tapped to do a Smirnoff campaign in Miami at Nikki Beach. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? <laughs> it was amazing. And it was it, it was like a, a collab between Smirnoff and Ford. And um, I think it was Gino Inacho or somebody who was performing. Stop. How fun. <laughs> my God. It was a blast. It was so much fun. And um, – so my firm was actually tapped to do it was the first time they'd ever worked with somebody who figured out how to merge digital, so like on, online community building with IRL experiential strategy. Um, so I did that, and I sort of at a bank. Actually, this by now I I had left completely. To oh, start. okay. This is like oh a, really? Yeah. So by Wait, now, so sorry, I'm confused. So you had your you started your own firm? Yeah, when I started learning all of these, when I started. Oh, okay more active leadership roles on these boards for the bank. Um, I realized that, you know, while I was like 24, I realized there was a serious need here. I started getting tapped for more, more work. Got it. Got it. And I, I just couldn't do both. And I was like, I need to just, I need to take the leap now or I'm never going to take the leap. What did it feel like to have already taken the leap to start your own thing to then go back to working for someone? And like I ask this because like I'm currently working for myself and I just I'm never like say no to anything. Like if an amazing opportunity came, I don't know, maybe. But I just I'm interested to know like what that psyche was like also. Yeah, it's a great question. I think I just had to get really real with myself of what resources I had at my disposal and what I had yet to learn. You know, I didn't know what it was to to I could never build that agency into a 100, 200 person, you know, organization. I didn't know the first thing about building an infrastructure for an agency or optimizing against larger systems or dealing with multi-million dollar budgets. So I was actually really really curious. Like I wanted to be able to run an oper- an operation at that level. And Joe, you know, really wanted, he really needed me as well on the social media side. So I think the important thing when we, when we came to the negotiation table working together was that I could run my team autonomously. I could run, you know, educational uh, workshops for the entire staff because it was really important to me. I could sort of already sense that, I mean, this is in 2009, I could sense that the traditional OGs of the advertising world were like, social media is not a thing. You guys are not going to be able to sell this to any clients. And I'm not going to learn it because it's a fad and it's going to go away. And so my mandate to him was, I need everybody to be on board with what I'm building for you. It can't just be you because I'm not going to like, you know, it's already an uphill battle trying to teach these dinosaurs. (laughs) I was such like a, you know, such an arrogant, you know, um, creative at that point. I learned from the best, of course, which I think made me, um, made the the rock bottom moments all the more humbling and really shaped me as a leader. But especially in the beginning, it was like, it's already an uphill battle trying to teach these people who have been seasoned, award-winning advertising execs that have worked in traditional media, radio, print, and TV only, and are refusing to hear about social media. So- I need your support and I need to know that I have full autonomy over the creative. And it was the first time anybody had put, put it in those terms for him. And so it was, it was a, I think it was an act of trust building for us and vulnerability, certainly in the beginning. But when I laid out my terms for him and when he was very explicit with what he was able to put forth um, 
and really what he needed. I mean, he was very open and honest with me. He was like, I am clear. Nervous. Back gonna- to that clarity. Yeah, totally. He was like, I am nervous. I'm going to lose this client because we can't, we can't give them the, the spunk. We can't give them the technical advances and I need to be able to offer them that strategy. So anyway, we agreed to, to trial it for, for a year and then I ended up there for almost five years. Wow. Yeah. So then when, when was the leap to New York? Actually, I went to Vegas after Miami. So it was oh my God. a downtown revitalization project there. It was a CEO of Zappos um, who decided on a whim. I mean, I'm sure this, I'm sure he was eager to do this. He doesn't really, um, he doesn't obsess over material things or money. So when um, Amazon acquired Zappos, he was like, oh, I cashed in at $350 million of my own money. So that was his, his personal mm-hmm. payout. And he was like, and I have no use for this. I'm going to put it back into the community. So it was very cool. It was really fun to be a part of. He um, seems like such a humble guy. Yeah. He really does. Mm-hmm. He's a big kid, which which is lovely. You know, it's 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 not every day that you meet somebody who's, you know, in his 40s that still sort of looks at the world with play and innocence and mm-hmm. Um, and wonder and possibility. And um, that was really infectious. Um, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed that time. And he, he kind of looked at me and I think one of the first conversations we had about me joining uh, the downtown project was, you know, if money was no object, what would you do? What would you focus on? And throughout this time of me building my career, I actually lost my dad's mom, my grandmother to um, type two diabetes, um, which was a just a total mindfuck for me because she was, I'm five, two, she was four, nine and like 90 pounds wet. And I always thought type two diabetes is the obesity diabetes. I mean, the media really has a way, um, with, uh, with fads and sort of, uh, this fear mongering that is very amazing. And so with that, I was sort of awestruck and, and, and of course devastated, and I was like, wow, I don't know anything about well-being. And um, by this time, I'm like 26 years old. And I'm like, this is crazy. You know, growing up, my mom's mom is French, Cuban. My mom is Cuban. I grew up in, a, you know, eating really rich foods. Never really thinking, like Jane Fonda was not a thing in my house. You know, organic food was not a thing in my house. And so I sort of now can call it the upward spiral. But I went into this like crazy wellness, like I need to just reevaluate everything that's important to me. And so, you know, I told him if money was no object, I would want to make wellness my life purpose. I would want to make helping people be lit up from within and, and you know, recognize their power um, through nutrition and, and helping them write their path. And he was like, Okay, cool. Well, I like what your you know your track record is. You've built a lot of great communities online. I'm trying to build a city as a startup. Why don't you come and help me build community the way that you did online IRL, and then help us build out the wellness infrastructure as you know your passion uh, sort of can drive the integrity and drive the the creativity of it. So it was really really interesting opportunity. What a fun project! How yeah. long was that for? Well, so it's funny because I did the same thing with him. I was very clear with him on, look, I have no intention of coming here, um, you know, on on a coattail. I certainly like I will give you 90 days. And if I can't, if I can't contribute to what you're building, I'm I'm out. So 
drove cross country from Miami to Vegas with all my things. So I was very committed uh, to trying this for real. I didn't want to sandbag it. Um, But yeah, I ended up there for three years. Wow. Yeah. My God. That was a wild time. And, um, you know, we had uh, invested in quite a few things, everything from a childhood, um, an an early child development center with a nutrition program for the families and the children. Uh, We did, you know, everything from yoga studios to juice bars and everything in between trying to build. But at that time, downtown didn't really have anything. Um, And so it was really fun to be able to help build that according to the community's needs. And then he was like, look, we've allocated all but every dollar. I want to invest in your idea. Um, And I, you know, had also been grappling, you know, I think probably a lot of listeners can relate to when you're thinking about how you can take your career or uh, to the next level or change or decide on a new path. Your instinct is like, how do we become an expert in this? And for me, it's like, shit, I'm not, I'm not going to go back to school, you know, for nutrition, like. How can I just serve this from an entrepreneurial standpoint and deliver on a truth that was, you know, something that I could speak to intimately? And of course, at Zuby, when I was working for Chase, American Airlines, Ford, these are, you know, they're based in Dearborn, Dallas, uh, and Columbus, Ohio. And so I think what what I experienced firsthand there that I was shocked no one had thought about, um, was living out of my suitcase as a consultant all those years, it was impossible for me to keep a wellness routine. I mean, I really went out of my way. I brought my juicer. I had protein powders. I mean, I brought my running shoes. I would run at the airport. I mean, I was a maniac. Oh I was a maniac because I was <laughs> like, it was a life or death thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the recent memory of, of losing my grandmother. So I think I was just like so fanatical and knew that, pain sort of so intimately of how difficult it is to maintain a wellness routine traveling. And so sure enough, he backed uh, my next venture. And, uh, and that was a roller coaster of learnings. Um, and then I think just being in that, so the next venture for, for the audience was um, uh, a firm that was designed to develop technologies and product and experiences for the travel space. So bringing wellness to uh it, what, what ended up becoming really trendy boutique hotels. And um, and it was interesting because it was a learning in developing a new culture, you know, mm-hmm. these uh, hoteliers and managers and operations folks and sales folks um, that this was- By the a- way, your events were what really got me into the wellness space. Aww. So just FYI, like this is when Jen had this firm, she was in, New- I don't know if you were living in New York, but you were in New York a lot. And I remember one specific event at the refinery hotel that I was like, I want to do more of this stuff. Like I need to be involved in more of these things. Like I want to be around these type of people. And that was literally your thing. So, no. And it was crazy. I think for me, it was like, oh my God, I, you know, there are so many people that were flocking to the hotel that were locals. And I'm like, damn, this is like a hidden gem. You know, the, the, the bars. So the refinery hotel is an amazing rooftop bar. And it's like, how does this space sit idle all day long? Um, you know, and, and not get activated or used for a greater purpose. And so I think it was, it was such a cool challenge to be able to convince the sales folks and the, and the management teams like, look, this is not only something you can add a value to in terms of your brand identity, but 
provide your guests an interesting service to experience wellness the New York way, right? Like wellness, a part of their tourist experience, you know, their, their, you know, immersive sort of cultural experience of learning and, and exploring that city. And, and that was a testament to, to my then co-founder. I mean, she was very much about the experiential element of it and sort of love bringing people together. I was very much interested in the technology side because I wanted to be able to provide people really intuitive solutions and learn from what they were actually doing so we could more change. But I think the the blessing of that experience was certainly seeing, you know, how much alcohol just pervaded every aspect of the hospitality world from the mini bar, um, which is really the last touch point. The first one is the lobby bar. I mean, the second right. in, it's like, oh, welcome, Sophie. Would you like white or red? And you're like, it's 11 a.m. Like, I'm not ready for one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I felt it firsthand. I mean, we would work our asses off at these events and then go and have cookies and wine. And it's like, are we living our truth? Is this happening? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I was sort of jaded, I think, too, by the end because it was, you know, a number of juice companies that had come to us and been like, hey, we really want to sponsor your event, but only if you're putting vodka in our juices. And we're like, really? Is that the way you're going to be relevant? Mm-hmm. Um, message are we sharing here? Um, and it started to become more more apparent to me how many people were suffering from addiction um, and hiding behind this, you know, retox detox modality that frankly we were promoting. Um, so rather than turn my back completely to wellness, I went and studied Ayurvedic medicine at, up at Kripalu in the wow. which is a gorgeous school. It used to be an ashram. Um, and it was a very cool experience because it was it was one of those moments I can certainly define as rock bottom, and it was it was the curriculum, it was the content, it was Ayurveda itself that rescued me and lifted me higher and taught me so much about how to have grace for myself, how to have grace for others, um, and then how to apply these elemental learnings to every single thing I did, not just nutrition, not just meditation, but actually building a business from that uh, matriarchal standpoint. Um, and then, you know, how long was that? Sorry, did you say? So no, I didn't. So it's, it's about a year and a half long program. And then you wow. have continuing ed from there. So my continuing ed, my, my focused uh, practitioner tracks have been um, Ayurvedic psychology and which has a lot to do um, had a lot to deal in uh, trauma and addiction treatment, and then um, herbology. So, you know, I incorporated a lot of those learnings into ultimately building kin with my, my co-founder, Matt Cobble. So it's, uh, it's been a journey, to say the least. I, I want to understand, like, this idea obviously doesn't come to anyone, clearly, because you are the first of the space. So mm-hmm. how do you go from, from knowing that whatever you're doing while you're on this journey has been serving you? personally, to then thinking that you are going to completely start a new category. Because I feel like a lot of people have like these cool thoughts or like they're doing something that is just for themselves. But then how do you identify what is worth moving forward to as a business, as a career, as a category, as an industry versus just something that you should just keep to yourself? Sure. Yeah. That's a really good way to put that question too. It's like, how do you know when it's worth pursuing and giving your whole life, because I honestly think to create something new and groundbreaking, you have to dive in fully. Mm-hmm. And empath- it's calling. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You have to identify what of your story can add value here and then what can you learn so that you can shape it into something that 
is serving others and not just yourself, right? So I think for me and Matt, it was having the conviction around two things. It was really wanting to preserve some of the the, the social ritual of drinking. It's a 10,000-year-old tradition. There has to be something at its core that has been worth preserving. And it's not just the drunkenness, right? You look back to its original intent. Its original intent was to help you connect with God and actually receive higher messages. Really? Yes. So emperors actually, you know, brand, uh, uh, brandies, whiskeys, sakes, and of course, wine and mead, which were the first, um, were an accident. It was a fermented fruit that was in a hunter's sack. And when they imbibed it, they were like, oh my gosh, I'm having these visions. You know, I'm having, I'm, it's, a, and, and I can only imagine because the neurochemistry was so different. Think about how much our, our own in the last decade workloads and environments have shifted. So you can only imagine what they were experiencing. And, and their, the goal, of course, in leading nations was to conquer and to seek higher wisdom so you could really make the best decision for your tribe. And, um, you know, we've gotten so, so, so far away from that notion, but it, we're, the pendulum is swinging back, right? People are craving consciousness. We're craving this sort of higher uh, purpose and, and connection with, with this sort of inner knowing. And so being that I knew those two things to be true, that the ancient tradition around alcohol and the modern craving of seeking divine spiritual knowledge, clarity, um, was an aspiration, was fast becoming an aspiration. And then going out into the world and being like, we have this weird idea. How you know, what are you thinking about when you, when you think about drinking, you know, how are you, have your, your habits changed? And we've heard, we heard people say, well, oh, I don't drink anymore. I, I take this pill or I, um, you know, drink this juice or whatever it is. And just hearing how people were sort of hacking this together at home was a big validator too, I think for not only for us and in, in opening the door to start dabbling, but in, in I think it's also worth mentioning that like your crew, like the people that you surround yourself with are also like the people that are kind of like in the Mecca of the wellness space. Cause yeah. obviously like that's where the trends are or not trends. Cause it's not, tr- I, I really think it's an incredible thing an industry that's going to boom, but like I feel like a, a person in middle America's friend group is probably not saying like, I'm drinking this juice. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. So like in Silicon Valley, for example, right? people were already, you know, smashing up nootropic, you know, pills and supplements and making their own concoctions and bringing them to Burning Man. And there were already people that were, you know, dabbling with certain performative things. And of course, you know, the run of the mill stories of like, oh, I have to, I can't function. I can't run a launch unless I'm, you know, drinking or snorting Adderall. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about, you know, we, we were sort of taking a page out of where we were headed from a performance standpoint. Like we are the most productive society of all time. And when you look at some of the world's best creatives and best producers, the truth of the matter is that they are on something. That is just the reality. And the more that I found that out, the more I realized this is a, this is a privileged situation that people don't talk about. They're either on psychedelics, LSD, mushrooms, they're playing with Molly, they're doing this. And then on the flip side, they're nourishing their minds with green juice and spirulina and, you know, all of these exotic ingredients, ashwagandha, you know, all of these adaptogens. And so 
where I sort of come from more of the holistic side from the Ayurvedic side and wanting to curb stress, which is what everybody that told me they drink a wine after, you know, a long day. Right. They're like, Oh, I just need, I need to take that edge off combined with the people who were really seeking higher learning through psychedelics. I'm like, there's something here. And Matt was like, okay, nootropics, like how do we work in nootropics? I was like, I don't know. Everything in in Ken has been born of like a healthy sort of tension, a healthy debate. Um, And it's like, do we have to choose a path? Maybe not. Maybe there is a story here where we are merging longstanding Eastern tradition of facilitating mood and balance through herbs and then facilitating or forcing or, or injecting this feeling, this brain stimulation, this mood through nootropics. What are nootropics? They are cognitive enhancing compounds they can be plant-derived or lab-synthesized, right? So created in a lab, derived from extracts that help to nourish the brain, typically in five ways. They were designed to improve learning, executive functioning, so thought processing, uh, memory, um, yeah, cognition in general, helping you articulate, helping you critical think and problem solve. And so what we understood was that people – primarily developers, were taking a cocktail of nootropics to help them sit at a computer and code for like eight, nine, ten hours at a time. And it was sort of in the same vein of Adderall, but it wasn't as psychotropic. It was more intended to just help zone in and focus the mind. Um, And they were taking them in really high doses. And for us, it was like the insight of how do you really want to feel? Like when you're on a first date, do you want to feel chill? But you also want to bring it. You want to be your best self. You want to have a cool joke to say. You want to remember that story. You want to really bring it um, in a relaxed way, in a way that feels free and fun. And I especially wanted that when I was connecting with my friends after work. Cause it's like, it takes so much for us being so performative, like cranking all day, being super stressed, living in the city, having all these urban distractions, and then having to go from that directly to the bar. Right. It was like, I would see a date on my calendar. I'm like, Oh my God, I have drinks tonight at seven o'clock. I'm freaking exhausted. I'm going to be a zombie. And I found myself time and time again, either canceling or apologizing when I got there, like, oh my God, I just chugged two espresso to be here. Give me that glass of wine, you know? And then imagine the, imagine the mind meld that you're mm-hmm. literally experiencing from jacking up your adrenals and your cortisol levels with, with that level of, of coffee and then drowning it in wine. And your system's like, holy hell, I've just been jacked up, plugged into a <laughs> carburetor. Then I'm, I'm being, you know, numbed out and drowned. It's just too much. So for us, it was like, all right, well, let's take a note from these folks who are really looking to optimize their, their machinery here. Understand what's happening with the brain. Because that was the other thing that sort of annoyed me was anytime people talk about alcohol, they only refer to the liver. Yes, the liver is important. So are the kidneys because they have to work to get this poison out of you. But what's happening to the heart? What's happening to the endocrine system? What's happening to the brain? And um, that's what we were trying to solve for. We we knew that there was a way forward to help people feel relaxed and them and tap back into themselves, um, 
and then also do that in a really sexy way that a bartender could be could be like respectably, you know, found making a, a really cool cocktail around or that a, a guest could show up and not be embarrassed by, you know, and a lot of my friends were like, Oh, I bring kombucha to parties, you know, I don't drink anymore. But it's not a sexy, I kind of have to like, excuse my way through it. And um, so yeah, I think it was both wanting to create something that was really sophisticated and something that was really functional. How do you go about educating people, especially investors? Like, how do you go about explaining what this thing that has never existed before is? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, I think in the beginning, it was like we went first to biotech firms that understood something as complex as, you know, recreating meat in a lab for vegans, you know, Mm -hmm. and they were very much invested in the future of food. They understood tech and how tech people worked. And so when we posed the question, you know, you're very astute and invested and, and knowledgeable on the future of food. What about the future of drink? You know, so when we put it to them that way, where, of course, alcohol as an industry hadn't really been shaken up or innovated against in 10,000 years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, other than brands, which are certainly a, a function of a, a modern convention, um, there wasn't much going on other than different flavors. I mean, because no matter what you ferment, distill, you know, it's still alcohol is alcohol is alcohol and drunk is drunk is drunk. So for Mm -hmm. us, we want to facilitate a very specific mood. We want to return agency to people and help them decide how they want to feel. Um, they really, really like that idea. Amazing. How, what was your launch strategy to convince consumers to give this a shot? I just told them the truth. I told them that bliss is their birthright. I asked them to change their perspective around an altered state, that you have to come to terms with the fact that walking out of your door, turning on your phone and reading the news, getting a bad email, that already is enough to take you out of your natural God-given birthright state of feeling good, feeling zen, peaceful, whatever your, your blissful state is. That already is an alteration of what our our brains want to do. And so returning to self, returning to euphoros is the best gift that you can give yourself. And when when they were able to see it as a treatment, as a gift to themselves, as a way to self-care, people really resonated with that. And I think that they're able to reach for a glass of kin or even something else and feel strong and empowered by that. Um and that was sort of my way of, of telling, giving them permission to, to try this. Um, and it really, it really works. It helps. It just shifts. It gives people the language and, and the confidence to do this anywhere. I have so many emails, Sophie, DMs, you name it, of women in particular, writing me and saying, you know, before I found out about Kin, before I heard your story, I never would have imagined a sober, sober, curious, alcohol-free, however they put it, because it's always it always is a, a reflection on how they perceive um, social value and how they're how they identify. I never saw an alcohol-free life being one for me, but you've made it sophisticated. You've respected, you know, this this choice for yourself, and it helps me respect it for myself. I have dignity in it. You know, and I avoid the stigma because here I am holding this beautiful drink. You know, the high road is is ruby red. Nobody bothers you. Um, And they feel proud. And that's real empowerment. We talk about where you're coming from, you know, four or five years of this 
you know, resurgence of the women's movement. And everybody's like women empowerment. And then you see a, a Jane, you know, a Jim Beam campaign with Mila Kunis uh, promoting uh, Jane Beam. If you're a real woman, you drink whiskey. It's like, no, fuck off. I don't have to be my masculine counterpart to be a great feminist. I can make my own values and my own dreams come true. And alcohol doesn't fit that equation. So bye. And like in terms of what it feels, I just want I I want to give my account because I bought both the high road and what's the the nighttime or like the wine kind of one ish dreamlight the nighttime one? dream dreamlight. Yeah. Um, I background for listeners that don't know me personally, like I do not go out super late. Like I'm kind of lame like that. Like I just don't like to. I like to get my hours of sleep. I drank high road in my like sober curious three month time. And went to freehold with my friends and they're like, oh my God, you're not drinking? Like how lame, whatever. I have never, like, I don't know if it was like in my head or like it, it actually was it. I don't I don't know what the hell was going on, but it was the latest I had stayed out. I was dancing my heart out at freehold. Like it was nobody's business. And I had the time of my life, honestly. I really did. And I actually loved what it tasted like and Good. drinking before I left. It was it was really nice. I'm so happy to hear that. I mean, that's what we designed it for. We designed it for happy hour. We saw a lot of people call it dance juice. And it's intended to help you recalibrate after a long day. A lot of times when we're stressed or we're exhausted or we're anxious, it, it can manifest as, as lethargy and sort of an antisocial depressive state. And so High Road helps to curb that. It helps to bring your endocrine system back into balance. And that and really allows your brain to move from the fight or flight to the rest and digest state so you can access empathy, love, creativity, and just lowered inhibition, which I think is, is what encourages people and incites them to dance and just let go. Um, so I love that. And the taste is very much uh, inspired by Campari tradition. It has a, a tart, sort of herbaceous essence with hibiscus and gentian. Um, so again, I had it on the rocks first cause I didn't know that like yeah. you could do a, a cock, a mocktail kind of, yeah. um, it's really good with just the regular, um, seltzer and, and lime to real yeah. good. That's what we call the kin classic. I love it with a little grapefruit juice and maybe some when blood orange is in season, which it's back in, I, I always have that and some ginger. And then the night is, um, Oh my gosh, that one is just, it's, it's actually my favorite because I, I tend to be super hyped all day and I need something to help me transition to slow down. So with everything that you're doing, what would you say is your deeper active ingredient? Like what is your, your reason for doing, I feel like you've hit it a few times, but if someone just asked you like the reason that you wake up in the morning and that you're grinding to like get through, I mean, it seems like you're doing great with, (laughs) with the situation, but like, what is it that is just so exciting to you? You know, I wake up every day renewed by the stories of our guests and our customers. You know, they they give me the fuel to keep helping them learn who they are. There is no greater purpose in my life than to empower someone, help them reach their highest potential. And you cannot do that until you look yourself in the mirror, you accept yourself with grace, and you learn your purpose in life. You have to know yourself to be able to do that. And it's a scary endeavor, but it's the most freeing thing at the same time. And so, you know, I would say every day I wake up and I think about those people. I really do because every day, especially during this COVID weird time, it's like, if I don't meditate in the morning, I'm a wreck for the day. And I, I take a minute to breathe and then 
you know, I think we talked about this, uh, uh, I think on, on Instagram, you asked about ingre- active ingredient and I, and I said faith and faith is, there's nothing more real than that. It's, it's putting your trust in the unknown and then also trusting that in this moment and your, whether it's your morning meditation or your afternoon prayer or whatever you have journaling that you surrender your fears to the ground, to the sky, wherever you can surrender them and know that they're they're safe somewhere where that energy, that frequency can hold space for you. You can relinquish that. You can surrender these fears so that you can clear your path to progress. There's nothing more freeing. And, um, and so when I get to do that for myself, I can show up for my work and offer that to other people, whether it's my teammates or my guests. It sounds so woo woo, and I and I I even like. No, it's so beautiful. I'm like in awe of that answer. It's it's so beautiful. And when you answered that on Instagram, I was just I I, I relate just so much. Um, and I think it's so beautiful. And and the reason I I have this podcast is really for like that person that is trying to find what that thing is for them, you know, and like they may just be so lost and like maybe it's because they're drinking too much or maybe it's just because they're they're searching and they don't know like the questions to ask themselves or or what to do to get there you know yeah so i always like to ask people that i have on that i genuinely feel are working in the active ingredient and it seems like you definitely are what advice would you give to someone that is is searching and wants it but just doesn't know what the steps are mm. well again i think when I say know yourself, I really do mean even the things that are sort of lurking in the back of your mind, getting real with yourself. The advice I would say is just to get real with yourself, sit down with a piece of paper, write down all the things that you fear people think about you or that they might think about you. If you strike out on your own, if you go back and work for a corporation, whatever it is that's sort of on your mind that you're contemplating as to whether or not this is the right thing for you. Write all of those things down. Address how you will, what the reality of that will be. How bad would it be actually? And how much better will you feel when you know that you're in your alignment? What will it take to figure out whether or not you're in your alignment and then make a decision from that place? It's like a little exercise with yourself, a a truth exercise, a trust exercise to get to the root of what's going to make you feel really, really good about you. And make the decision really about the next five years of your life. If you don't do it, will you regret it? If you do do it, who can you? Ch- whose life can you change if not your own? You know, who's going to be inspired by this work? Who is going to benefit? There's so much. There's so much bravery, I think, in making a decision from the place of knowing, but then for other people, right? For the sake of control. Amazing answer. I always close out the podcast asking what is your literal active ingredient, something that you cannot go a day without. Um, it can be coffee, it can be meditation, it could be essential oils, whatever, whatever it is that you need every single day. Mm. Well, I have to prayer and water. <laughs> <laughs> prayer and water. I love it. Well, this was amazing. Thank you so much. I really honestly have been wanting to have you on the podcast since I even thought about starting this podcast. So <laughs> I'm so happy that we were able to make it happen, even if it was remotely. And I want to give you a big hug. But you I know, virtual hug. I'm so glad I got to see your face earlier. Hope to see you in person very soon. You too, babe. Stay safe.
Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you can take two seconds of your time to rate and review us, it would really mean the world and help us out a ton. If you guys want more inspiration and quotes from the episode, you can check us out on Instagram at Active Ingredient. See you next week.